This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Amen. That's our prayer. Good to see you all. If you remain standing, you can open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll be reading from verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Speak, O Lord. Renew our minds, O Lord. Build your church until the earth is filled with your glory. Amen. Let us stand. Three weeks ago, we looked at verses 3 through 5, and the main uh, point, the main clause of this whole long section all the way through verse 12 is right at the beginning of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a doxology, an expression of praise by Peter, and we looked at the first part, verses 3 through 5, three weeks ago, and Now we want to pick it up in verses 6 through 9. And verse 6 gets right to the heart of what this whole book is all about. And what is this whole book all about? It's about responding to trials. Uh, Responding to others during trials. Responding to God while we are in trials. Trials and tribulations are inevitable. They are a part of the human experience for Christians. We are pilgrims, remember, in exile, on a journey to the promised land. In chapter 4, verse 12, Peter will say to them, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial or ordeal when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is part of our experience. Uh, The Apostle Paul said uh, in the book of Acts, he said, Through many tribulations we must 
enter the kingdom of God. Our Lord Jesus said to the disciples, in this world you have tribulations. So trials, testings are part of our experience. There's no denying it. And Peter writes this whole book to help us respond in the midst of them. Now notice that Peter here in verse 6 does not actually command them to rejoice. There's no imperative there. He's simply describing what he believes is their experience. Later, he will command them in chapter 4, 13. He says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. In other words, as you suffer for Christ, then rejoice. There he does command them that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And Paul elsewhere says, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice So yes, we are commanded elsewhere to rejoice. But here, in verse 6, Peter is not commanding them. He is simply describing an experience that he is confident they are having as he is having it because he's describing an experience that only genuine believers know. And he knows and believes that they've experienced this. This is the fruit of being born again to a living hope. The fact that you can rejoice in the midst of trials and experience a deepening love for Jesus. Now, the trials and sufferings that Peter is talking about and writing about uh, are things that God allows or rather sends into our lives. Uh, They're not the result of failures. This is not the result of sins or having made a wrong decision, made a wrong turn. The kind of trials that Peter is talking about are the trials that have been sent into our lives by God to test our faith. The word he uses there, perosmois, is a word that means to test, to, to reveal the condition of something. And in this case, God wants to reveal the condition of our faith, to purify our faith, to, to reveal the truth about our faith. These are tests. They're not temptations. God tempts no one, says James, and they're not the result of our sins per se. These are tests designed to affirm, not to fail. Kind of like when a, uh, a mother eagle pushes that eaglet out of the nest for the first time. It's a test of those wings, a time to put them to work. And so these trials that Peter says God sends into our lives comes in various size and shapes. You notice he uses the word various. That's uh, the same word that's used to describe Joseph's multicolored coat. It's the same word that James, the brother of Jesus, uh, uses when he says in James 1, verse 2, he writes and says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet or fall into trials of various kinds. They come in all different sizes and shapes. Now, the, his readers, remember, the first readers, these exiles scattered throughout northern Turkey, what we call modern Turkey today, their trials were taking the shape of an intensifying persecution because of their faith in Jesus. They were right on the cusp of, of uh, empirical or civil uh, persecution 
of Christians. And Peter could see the clouds coming, the dark clouds. They were beginning to, to feel an intense social pressure. You know, sort of like where our culture's heading, but we're not there yet just in, in that regards. But those were their trials. These trials come in other shapes, in other ways. And I, I imagine that uh, you, yourself, some of you have experienced them or you are experiencing them, the kind of things that drive you to, to despair. Some of you have been facing a sort of un- uncertain future, be it about your health, uh, be it about someone else whom you love, be it about your finances, be it about anything else. These trials come in all sorts of shapes. And what Peter wants to get across in these verses, 6 through 9, is this. This is the central message. God uses trials to purify your faith, Christian, and increase your love for and joy in the Savior. That's everything he's saying in verses 6 through 9. God uses trials to purify your faith and increase your love for and joy in the Savior. Now, what I want to do is make four observations from these four verses. Four observations about joy in the midst of trials. First of all, joy in trials, if I could put it this way, is a paradox that only Christians experience. Joy in the midst of trials is a paradox that only Christians can experience. What's a paradox? It's sort of a counterintuitive conclusion. You know, when you have two apparently contradictory ideas, and yet both of them are true. Sort of like you hear somebody say, if you drink too much water, you could get thirsty. You say, how's that work? Well, Peter says here, rejoice. You are rejoicing. He doesn't even command it. He says, you are rejoicing, though... Now you've been grieved. You are rejoicing, though now you have been grieved. Someone might say, well, it sounds like grieved is in the past tense. So maybe what Peter's saying is you were grieved, but, but now you're rejoicing. No, that, that, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because of two reasons. For one, the kind of, the kind of grammar there uh, regarding you have been grieved is action that is simultaneous with the main verb. The main verb is you're rejoicing even though you're grieving. And then the addition of the word right now just seals it, you see. Seals it. And grief, the grieving he's talking about, is not the circumstances, but the result of the circumstances. It is an emotion. It's a feeling. And so what Peter is saying is that a Christian can simultaneously feel these two things. You could, rejoi- you could be rejoicing and you could be grieving at the same time. Peter doesn't say, you're now rejoicing even though you were troubled. He's saying, you are rejoicing now, and you are grieving, feeling despair now. As D. Edmund Hebert puts it in his commentary, he says, sadness and gladness exist side by side. Sadness and gladness exist side by side. That is an experience only known by Christians. And why is that? Because the gladness he's talking about is not any sort of gladness. It is the joy of our salvation. The joy 
that is the product of our relationship with Jesus. And that joy could be experienced simultaneously with grief. Anyone can feel the grief side of things, right? Everyone goes through trouble. Everyone goes through pain. Everyone goes through loss. Everyone in the world will grieve. But only Christians will feel that paradoxical combination. It's not a contradiction in our experience. Two things that come together at the same time. And we need to be honest. That's the truth. People grieve. Grief is real. And joy can actually be experienced in the midst of grief. And so that's the first observation I want to make here. And the second observation is that the fountainhead of this joy, this paradoxical situation, this the fountainhead of joy in the midst of trials <coughs> is faith in the gospel realities, the truths of our salvation. That's where it flows from, you see. It's, it flows from faith in what God says is our salvation. Look at how he begins verse 6. If you would look down at your text, it says, In this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. What's the this? Well, the grammar is not explicit. Some say, well, it's the power of God, or it's, it's the inheritance that he points to. The, I think the best answer, as some Greek scholars conclude, is that the this is everything he has just said in verses 3 through 5. He's, what did he say? He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. And here's the quality of that inheritance. It is imperishable. It is undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept. Remember, it's guarded in a safe in heaven for you. What if I don't make it? You will. You are the one who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice, you see, though you are grieved. In all this, you rejoice. And what is all this that I just read? You know what all this is? It's doctrine. Yes, doctrine. Somebody says, doctrine? Yes, <laughs> truth. <laughs> Biblical truth. Everything I just read is a theologically rich and profound description of the Christian salvation, the Christian experience. In fact, some think it goes all the way back to verse 1. You have there the whole scheme of salvation beginning in verse 1. Where did our salvation begin? You are God's elect exiles, chosen before the foundation of the world. You were sanctified by the Spirit, consecrated for the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. All this is from the mercy of God who caused you to be born again to a living hope because you have a living Savior and that inheritance that lies ahead for you is protected and so are you because God guards you through faith until that last day. You have it all there. The origin of salvation, God's elective grace, the basis of it, the blood of Christ, the application of it, the sanctification of the Spirit, the security of it guarded through God's power and the consummation of it when he is revealed. It's all there, you see. In this you rejoice. That you can rejoice in. 
even when you're still grieving in your heart, when you're feeling the pain of difficulty. It's amazing to me how sometimes I'll speak with some Christians who say that doctrine's not helpful. That doctrine is just too mental. It's too brainiac-ish, and it, it, it divides people, and, you, you know, it's too abstract. Uh, you know, I don't want to read a book that big. I get it. Some of you don't want to read a big book about it. But let me say this. You will never be able to get through suffering well. We will all get through suffering because we're guarded by God's power. But you will never be able to get through suffering well in a way that brings a testimony to Christ unless you know a whole lot of Bible doctrine. Unless you know and believe and trust a whole lot of truth about all that God has done for you and is doing and will do for you in Christ Jesus. It's essential. Absolutely essential. And not just any doctrine, this doctrine, the doctrine of the gospel. In this you rejoice. And we never stop growing in it, right? Uh, what Paul's, Paul's prayers for the Ephesians, we've mentioned it here repeatedly. In Ephesians chapter 117, remembering he spent three years discipling them, he says he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I want you to know him more, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope, the hope, the inheritance, right, to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? I, I pray for you that you'll keep growing in this. And in chapter 3 says, I pray that you'll come to know the height, the depth, the breadth of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. In this, you rejoice. You'll never suffer well unless you reflect deeply on this. This and get your eyes off the problem. Get your eyes off the grief as much as possible. And think about this, as he said. Faith in these gospel realities is the fountainhead of our capacity, our ability to rejoice in the midst of trials. To be able to join Paul and Silas who were whipped in prison uh, and then they are let go. They're still, I'm sure, pained and they are rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. In this, you rejoice. Now, thirdly, God's perspective regarding your trials is also something that you need if you're going to experience joy. You need to not only reflect on this, the sweeping truths of our salvation, but you also need to see your problems, your suffering, from God's perspective. We see things from down here, horizontal, and usually the questions are, why and how come and why now and really and me and what about this and... God is seeing it from a whole other point of view. We need his insight. Perspective. Perspective. I remember, when I I remember when I broke my ankle in May of 21, and 
and the next day I was at uh, at the hospital and and I was told about the doctor's perspective. He put my foot up, remember my ankle on that metal plate, and he said, I'm going to recreate the accident now. I'm going to twist your foot. I said, there's no need to do that. I can tell you exactly what happened. I can tell you right where it hurts. And he says, no, I need a clear perspective. <laughs> I need to see if your ligaments are still attached whole different point of view. Now, I have to say in that case, his perspective didn't help me at all, okay? But God's perspective on your trials will help you, beloved, if you begin to see them from his point of view. And what Peter tells us is that there are three ways that God views your trials. Remember, what Peter says here doesn't exhaust everything the Bible has to say about trials, right? So you might think of other things, but here are three uh, elements of God's perspective on your trials. They, they are temporary. They are under His control. And they serve or they have a divine purpose. Okay? First of all, they're temporary. In this you rejoice, verse 6, though now for a little while. A little while. While I know some of you are thinking, man, my little while's getting to be more than a little. <laughs> What's a little while? What do you mean a short time? What do you, the King James says for a season. A season. In other words, there's a beginning, there's an end. They are temporary. They're limited. Now, not all trials are brief, and we should admit that because we need to be honest. Not all testings and trials of our faith are brief. In fact, some of them last till the end of this life, don't they? Like in my dad's case, when he, when he caught Alzheimer's, it was till he left. Right. I think what Peter means is that, that you need to see them in comparison to God's timeline of redemption. You need to place them in God's timeline, not yours. In other words, in comparison to eternity, which is what on the level that God's working, what you go through here is brief compared to that, compared to what he's doing in eternity. Some of you know the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, and I was told after first hour that I, I happened to mention her, and today is her 73rd, I think, birthday. You know, in 1967, I think it was, she, she became a quadriplegic as a result of a diving accident. 1967, a brief time, a little time. You say, well, that seems like a long time. But eternity, where at the level God's working, it's much longer. <laughs> it's endless. And so that is a perspective that is God's perspective that you need to try and, and, and chew on. Here's another verse that'll help you, 2 Corinthians 4.17 Remember there, the Apostle Paul uh, says he's not, he doesn't lose heart. Why? For this light, momentary affliction. Light, in comparison to something that's heavier, momentary, in comparison to something else that's much longer, he says this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
how do you not lose heart? Paul, he says, well, as we look not to the things that are seen, the trial, the pain, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So if we're to have God's perspective on our struggles, our trials, we need to place them in God's timeline of redemption. They may last the rest of your life. I don't know. But that's light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of what God has in store for us. Now, secondly, they are under God's control. They are under God's control. Now, Peter doesn't say that directly, explicitly, but it's implicit. God is the goldsmith here. He is the refiner who is refining our faith like gold. Uh, and in chapter 4, he does say explicitly that we suffer, in verse 19, we suffer according to God's will, both God's moral will and his plan, his decreed will. So trials are under your heavenly Father's control. Notice he says there, if necessary, if necessary. And you say, well, I sure don't think it's too necessary right now. But, the, you know, the grammar there, the kind of condition clause there is this. If necessary, and it is, it is necessary for you to suffer. But God's in control of that. We suffer according to his will, which means this, at least this. It means that God's people, you, you are never afflicted needlessly. Needless. And not a moment more than you need. Not a moment less. Not a bit harder than you need. The Father is the one who determines when, how, how long. I ask you what I ask the people in the first hour. Aren't you glad it's your Heavenly Father who decides this? <laughs> because we would make a wrong decision. And I think some of us tend to, not looking at our own troubles, but how we treat others, sometimes we'd, we'd try and take God's job here and inflict pain on others, inflict grief on others, so we can what? Change them, improve them. Well, yes, Bible says we are to reprove people, correct, yes. Or uh, parents are to discipline their children. The church is to practice discipline. You see, that's all, that is all corrective. That's dif different than what? Then grief, causing grief because of the way you treat someone with a view of trying to inflict pain so it gets a result. Sometimes parents are notorious about this. It happens in all sorts of relationships. It happens in churches. It happens in marriages. i tell you two things about that. One, if pain helps, you don't even know how much to give. You'll never get it right. There's only one heavenly medic who knows the kind of pain you need and how long of the pain you need it. He's the only surgeon with the exacting knife. He knows you and I are going to injure people. It's none of our business. It's God's business to inflict pain. You reflect upon your own relationships. 
and you ask of yourself about what's your role in all this? Your role is to come alongside people in pain, not to be inflicting it, that you might change them. That's God. They're all under his control. Praise God. He knows how much you need. He understands how much pressure you need in your life. He knows what he wants to produce. He says, you need patience. So I'm going to make you be patient. (laughs) You need humility. So watch me. I'm going to humble you. But we don't do that for one another. Praise God. Our Father knows what he's doing. Amen? And that he is the medic. So trials, they are temporary from the perspective of all that God has planned for you and me. And, and, and trials are under his control. And lastly, and more, perhaps most interesting and important, is that all trials serve a divine purpose. There's a reason. Uh, notice verse 7 begins, so that, so that. And here's what he says in this context. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your trials are carefully designed and weighed and measured by the Heavenly Father to refine and purify your faith so it will be seen to be the genuine article, just like gold is refined, uh, so that you will know that you have the genuine article. God already knows so that you will know where you stand in faith. God already knows where you stand in faith. And so there is an immediate purpose to testing, and there's an ultimate purpose. What is the ultimate purpose? That your, your genuine faith will result, he says, in, in, in those three things right there at the end. Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate purpose there. And I think what he means there is that praise and glory and honor is is to be given to you, the believer, not because you merited it, but because through your genuine faith, which was purified, you are in Christ. You are sharing in his praise and glory and honor at the end. As Paul says that when Christ is revealed, then you will be revealed with him and glory. And as Christ receives glory, you who are in Christ will receive glory, praise and honor and glory, not because you merited, but because your faith was tested, purified, and it is genuine. And so that is an ultimate purpose of the refining and the testing of your faith. Uh, The immediate purpose is described in different ways by different authors. For example, they all produce something. All of them say that the testing of your faith produces something. Uh, let's look at chapter, well, chapter 5 of Romans, verse 3. There, uh, Paul says, chapter 5, verse 3, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces, here it is, endurance. Endurance, that's a word means the ability to Bear up under weight, under a heavy weight. The ability to continue to bear up under a heavy weight. He says, we, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Character, more maturity and character produces hope, uh, a deepening hope in what God's promised and hope does not put us to shame. That is hope 
that it, Christian hope will never shame us. And so there he says it produces unendurance, it produces character, and it's the, the, the brother of the Lord, James, who says in chapter 1 of James, he says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet or find yourself in trials of various kinds, for you know, again, knowing, for you understand, you know what? That the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Again, it's the same thing. It's this endurance and let steadfastness have its full effect. What is that? That you may be perfect, that is, brought to maturity and complete, lacking in nothing. So you are tested. Why? Because you lack something <laughs> in your character. You and I lack. And God's goal is to send things into your life to mold you more and more into the image of His Son. He sends these tests, these trials, to purify your faith, and also He sends them to produce something. But these are things you need to know, He says, knowing, knowing, just like meditating on the truth of the gospel. The mind, the mind serves the heart. The mind serves the heart. You need to know. You must understand. You must reflect. You must meditate. And it's a great duty of ours, the church, to teach you the fullness of the Word of God. To teach you the fullness of the gospel and salvation. Because your mind serves your heart and enables it to, to rejoice in the midst of suffering. And here's one of the things you need to understand. God is producing something because you lack something. Now, Peter speaks of it differently. He talks about it being dokiman is the word he uses. When that, that word means something that was tested and proven to be genuine. Tested and proven genuine, not fake. And this is what happened with gold. The goldsmith, what would he do? Uh, gold was refined, how? Purified because it was superheated until it became molten, liquefied, and then the impurities or the dross would go to the surface and the goldsmith would wipe it off and keep wiping it off. You Maybe you've heard this before, until he could see his own reflection, right? That is the purification of gold. And what Peter does here is he compares God's testing of your faith to gold being purified, and he contrasts it to gold as well. What is the comparison? What he's saying is these tests are like the heat, the furnace that God puts you in in order that he might prove the genuineness of your faith. Test it. Reveal whether or not, again, it's authentic. Not because he needs to know, but because you need to know, Barbara. And it's a testimony to the world. And if that faith proves to be real, in the end, it also results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The contrast with gold is this. He says, even precious gold that's been purified and seen to be genuine perishes. But your tested genuine faith, the implication is what? Has eternal uh, implication at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, this um, testing purifies 
revealing our faith, um, not only shows if it's genuine, but I, I know Peter doesn't get that into this here, but you and I know and we've seen in other places that they, the tests reveal not only the genuineness, but also shows the weak spots, right? Mm, it shows us the, how strong our faith is or where it is that we struggle applying our faith. You know, we live by faith. We walk by faith. But these tests reveal just where there we aren't as strong as we thought. That's one of the worst things about trials, huh? isn't it? Is when you go through them, it's, it's, it, it, you, you may see something about yourself you were hoping not to see. I thought I was better. I thought I was further than that. I thought I was better than that. It was amazing that I did that. That I was tested so hard and I, I failed. Yeah, they test, reveal the weak spots. But that's profitable, isn't it? Absolutely is profitable. Someone said there's no greater gift God can give you than self-discovery. Well, I don't know, but <laughs> I know this. There's no more painful gift than <laughs> sometimes than self-discovery, than seeing yourself in the mirror of the law, that law of God, and saying, man, you're right. But it's beneficial. Yeah, indeed, it's a great self-discovery is an essential gift in this journey towards heaven. I remember a time when I had some self-discovery. This is not so much about my character, but it's about something else. But just to illustrate it for you, I mean, decades ago when I was slowly learning more and more about snow skiing and getting a little better, you know, you start from the bunny slopes and then you work your way up to the blue squares. And, you know, you're I'm an intermediate skier, you know. Then we went to Sierra Ski Ranch, and there was a black diamond ski run there. That's the hardest ones, or the double black would be. And that black diamond ski run was called Preacher's Passion. And you know what I did. I said, I got to do it. <laughs> How can I not do it? <laughs> How can I be here and not ski Preacher's Passion? People tell me, hey, but it's a black diamond. Don't worry about it. So I went up there, and I looked down. It's towards the end of the day now, so... The snow is now getting icy, and it's pretty steep, and it's got all these moguls, you know, these bumps, and you got to do that right. But, but it's preacher's passion. i got to do this. And so I set out there to do it. Self-discovery is painful, very painful, literally for me. I mean, I don't know how far I got before I was face down and then in humility, the rest of the way, I was for the slide of the side of the ski run, mostly on my back, kind of floating down the hill. Self-discovery is painful, but profitable. And God will bring these tests into your life that you may discover where your faith is at. Not just to crush your spirit, but once again, to grow you. See, suffering shows you your faults, your flaws, but if you are thinking right, that in turn should drive you right back to the gospel. That's something you need to know, and we endeavor to show you all this all the time. Suffering, trials, pain show you your flaws, self-discovery, and the goal of it is not to sit there and be morose. It's to then be driven to your resources in Christ. <laughs> And there you are encouraged, there you are strengthened, there you change, you see. Grief makes you go. 
to your resources. This summer when it got 110 out here, what happened in your homes, most of you? Your AC kicked on. You know, Your resources, boom, came alive. And pain drives you to him. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, trials aren't just to burn out the dross. They're also to burn in the promises. And that's how it works. You're going through something now. You're ashamed about something. Is God showing you something about yourself? Go to your resources. Go to your resources. They are necessary. God wants to do something in your life, which is why he puts you in the furnace. Uh, Brother Frank Griffith, a pastor who's gone to be with the Lord now, uh, he illustrated on more than one occasion with this story, the story about a boy who found a little butterfly in a cocoon trying to come out of its cocoon. And the boy saw that the butterfly was struggling to come out of the cocoon. It was taking so long. So he got something sharp so he could cut it open and fly it open. And then the butterfly came out. It was beautiful, but it, it wasn't flying, and it didn't fly. So he went to his parents, and his parents said to him, God is the creator, and the creator designed the butterfly, and he designed the cocoon to be hard. Because as the butterfly struggles and struggles and struggles and struggles, this sends fluid into his wings so that when he comes out, he's prepared to fly. And the boy grieved. He was sad because he was trying to help. But what he did is he got in the way. Pain is necessary, beloved. It is the struggle that turns you back to your resources in Christ and prepares you for what God has coming down the road. They're designed not only to burn out dross, they're designed to burn in the promises and prepare you for the things God has in mind for you, your future. Now there's one last observation, and that comes from verses 8 through 9. It's going to be one long sentence, but here it is. I think what Peter's saying, verses 8 through 9, when he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not know now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What's all that mean? I think what Peter's saying is this. The ability to love and rejoice in the unseen Christ, unseen to your eyes, in the midst of trials, is both a mark of genuine faith and a foretaste of our final salvation. I think that's the message. That's a mouthful. Let me say it again if you don't have your outline. Let me say it again. The ability to love and rejoice in the unseen Jesus in trials is both a mark of genuine faith and a foretaste of our final salvation. You see, having just said in verse 7 at the end, the revelation of Jesus Christ, Peter digresses for a moment, and it's like he knows, you know what, they, you have never seen Jesus. I know that. Someday he's going to be revealed, but right, you have never seen, he knows he has an advantage, because in chapter 5 he says, I am an eyewitness of his suffering. 
And so he wants to show them that their inability, their lack of physical sight of the Messiah is by no means uh, an, an overcomable obstacle to the ability to experience joy in trials. He says, though you've never seen him, you love him. Again, there's no command there. He doesn't say, get on, man, love him. He says, you love him. He knows that's their experience. You say, well, how's that? An encouragement. Because the ability to love the Savior in the midst of trials rather than become bitter and morose is what? Is the fruit of having been born again to a living hope that he has just talked about. You're able to love him rather than become embittered at God and shake your fist at heaven. The fact that you can love him more is an encouragement. Because if you have been born again, then you have a love for Christ, a love for God. And I know some of you have experienced that, and you've said that. You have testified. Jonathan Edwards, a great American theologian, he wrote a lot of deep, profound you know, writings and treatises. He wrote one called the Treatise on Religious Affections. A re- religious affections, and what... What he argued in there is that genuine Christian faith is not just intellectual. The mind serves the heart. The heart will love, is what he was getting at. Genuine Christian faith will result in a love for Christ. And he says, the love for Christ that is deepened in, deepened in and experienced through the furnace of trials is one of those great distinguishing marks of genuine Christianity. Real faith. Why? Because it's a miracle. It's the work of God in your life. Yes, religious affections. Our faith is more than intellect. Not less, but, but not only. It's more. And this is the product of faith, not sight. He says, though you have not seen him. What did Jesus say? Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. You know who that is? That's you. That's you. That's you. That's me. He's talking to Thomas there. That because you've seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and believe. Listen, this is good news. This is good news. If you're here today, you're not sure you're a Christian, you can experience everything that Peter is talking about here, everything that he's describing, all this salvation, and you don't need to see Jesus with your eyes. It's all a matter of faith, seeing him with the eyes of your faith. Faith comes from hearing, not from seeing, uh, seeing and hearing the word of Christ. So, Peter says, he encourages them. He says, you love him, even though you have not seen him. That's a mark of being born again. And then he says, and you're not seeing him now. Even now, you're not seeing him, yet you are believing in him. And go on. He says, not only believing in him, but you are also rejoicing with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. All those are present tense verbal forms. You're not seeing him right now, and yet you are believing in him right now, and you're also rejoicing with this joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Literally, it's glorious joy, glorious joy, a joy empowered by the hope of glory that you have. 
It's an inexpressible thing, he says. What's he mean by that, this joy being inexpressible? Well, it's the only time this word is used in the New Testament, is this right here. And he's referring to something that human words cannot fully express. So what he's saying is this joy and love that are in him, meaning not just in doctrine, but in him you are believing in him, you are rejoicing in him, this joy in Christ in this person that is in the midst of grieving at the same time. He says that cannot be explained in words. What he means is, it is so contrary to the world, so contrary to natural thinking, so contrary to someone who has not been born again, that you can't really explain it. How is it that you could be grieving so badly and be rejoicing in Christ, someone you can't even see with your eyes? Because it's the work of the Spirit. Because I've been born again, I'm able to do this. That's what Peter is getting at. This is deeply encouraging. And then verse 9, it's a little harder to understand, at least how it's connected to everything else. Look down verse 9. He says, Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What's not clear here, it's how that relates to what he said in verse 8. You're not seeing him now, but you are believing in him. You are rejoicing with joy. It is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining. What's the connection there? Hmm. Some say, well, it's just another idea, and you're obtaining. Some say, no, it's a, a temporal idea, and it's a, it has to do with the future because he's talking there about the salvation of their souls. So when you obtain uh, the salvation of your souls and so forth, the outcome of your faith, but it's neither of those. Because if Peter, listen, if Peter wanted to put everything in the future tense, he could have easily done it. He could have said when. He, could, he didn't write when. He, did, he could have said, put the verb in the future. He puts it in the present. So what's he talking about? I think he's talking about that glorious joy from the previous verse. That is a joy that is fueled by a view, a vision, an understanding of the hope that lies ahead of you, glory. So it's a glorious joy, and you obtain that little taste of the final outcome of what's going to happen to you at the end when Christ is revealed. And you talk about experiences of people who, who in the hardest of times, and some of you are in this room, can say, it was, I look back on it now, and it was glorious, glorious to know Christ better. In fact, I miss that. I miss what was happening. I don't miss the pain. <laughs> I don't miss the trial, but I miss that proximity to Jesus and his intimacy with me that you were obtaining the outcome, that final outcome, which is the full completion of your salvation. Taste of glory. A little taste of what it's going to be like to see him fully be made like. I ask myself, when have I ever felt that? When has this happened? Well, it's been in the hardest moments. Some of you would say the same. It's in watching my dad degrade to five-year-old child mentally. That commingling gladness and sadness, inexpressible 
sort of assurance. Let me finish with three takeaways for you, okay? We'll be done. Three takeaways. Sing a song and then uh, see an announcement. First of all, this is not something you set out to experience. Yeah, You don't set out to achieve this. This is something the Spirit produces. God produces this. He's the goldsmith. He tests your faith. You just simply believe. Your part is what? To trust God. That's it. Trust Him and try. Let your mind serve your heart. View it from God's perspective. Believe and trust what He's saying. Now, sometimes trusting God involves a clear choice, doesn't it? You know what I'm talking about. You know that if you trust God and obey Him, then you're going to be in the furnace. It's going to be hard. And so at that moment, yeah, you are involved. But you're not involved in creating the, the joy. You just need to trust and do the right thing. Secondly, it is okay to grieve. I think we need to say that sometimes in our circles, you know. Sometimes we're in such a hurry to have that put on that positive, you know. How's everyone doing? Well, yeah, he's bouncing around in heaven. We're all sure glad about that. And we want to memorialize people. We want to we celebrate their life. And I get that. I understand that, and we should do that, but we also grieve, folks. Joy does not supplant the grief right away all the time. You say, what Paul says, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice, yeah, but joy doesn't mean there's no grief. We just saw that. you got to bring all these things together. And Paul himself says this in 2 Corinthians 6.10, describing his and the apostles' experiences. He says, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And to the Thessalonians, he says, yes, we grieve. Grieve, but not as those who have no hope, but we still grieve. We need to let the tears flow. Some of you need to do that your own life. And, and, and give others the room to grieve. And there's no immaturity happening here. Because people don't just bounce up and down when life's going bad. This inward joy is something God produces, not something you fake on the outside. Lastly, God regards your, your fire-refined, purified, tested faith as precious and more important to Him than keeping you pain-free and trouble-free. The result of what he's looking for is more important than keeping you out of pain. It's the cocoon. You need the cocoon. You need that fluid to flow into your wings so you can fly. Martin Luther <coughs> always had a way with words. He said, affliction is the best book in my life. Let's pray.